it's absolutely a pleasure for me to welcome you to the next edition or episode two of uh, Thinkers Dialogue. Now, today we have a very special guest uh, with us, and he is Professor Arun Kumar. Uh, in fact, uh, if you really want to know about him, you, uh, or I'm sure you already know about uh, Professor Kumar because of his work uh, in the area of economics. He's been a professor at JNU, and now he's a chair professor at Institute of Social Sciences. Uh, and then, of course, he has done a number of books. In fact, one of the most uh, interesting books that I read by him was actually on uh, demonetization. He's also done something on black economy, and now he's actually written this book uh, on COVID. In fact, uh, quite interestingly, if you've not seen it, I would suggest that you please do look at this uh, book called Indian Economy's Greatest Crisis. Uh, so this is what we are really, we are going to be talking about his body of work in this Thinker's Dialogue. And as I shared earlier, um, Thinker's Dialogue is a weekly uh, interaction that we do with the foremost thinkers across the world. Professor Kumar, uh, it's a privilege to have you with us today. And thank, thank you God for uh, joining us. Thank so you. we'll quickly dive into the conversation. Uh, yes. Uh, so Professor Kumar, in your book, you've made a very interesting uh, statement. Uh, and that is that uh, lockdown is probably one of the worst crises that India has actually seen. Uh, and then... So my question is that you've also been a very vociferous person who said that demonetization was not wrong or whatever. So how do you really measure these two things uh, from that perspective, like lockdown versus demonetization and so on and so forth? So, you know, uh, lockdown is a voluntary cessation of activity. You know, we decide not to go to work. We decide not to go to factory. We decide not to go to, you know, the offices. So roads are empty and so on, you know. Uh, demonetization is not like that. Demonetization is something that the government said that we will remove from circulation uh, the money, the large denomination currency notes. Now, what is the role of money? The role of money is to circulate incomes. And when money becomes short, then circulation of income stops. So, you know, you are in a situation in demonetization where the economic activity goes down because of shortage of money. Here it is that we voluntarily stop going for work. So except for the essentials, we don't produce anything. So that's why, you know, as soon as the lockdown was implemented, only the essential production could take place. So that meant that only 25% of the economy could function. 75% <coughs> stopped functioning. Whereas in demonetization, what happened was that the unorganized sector, which deals with money, which circulates incomes with money, they are the ones who are hit. Here, Unorganized sector was hit and the organized sector was also hit, you know. So this is, in fact, the worst crisis. So what I'm saying was that you see in a war, what happens is that you see demand doesn't fall. Uh, you know, people are busy fighting the war. You know, uh, the production is reoriented towards war production. Uh, but what happened in the lockdown was that suddenly, you know, as per my estimate, 200 million people lost work, you know. So therefore, what happened was incomes fell and therefore demand fell, you know, and unemployment, you know. Uh, in a war, you don't have unemployment, but here you had massive unemployment. And even in the US, for instance, 44 million people lost work within 12 weeks. So, you know, this is unprecedented. Even the 2007 9 uh, uh, global financial crisis, you didn't have this many loss of work in uh, the US. So, globally, you know, people lost work, people lost employment, and therefore demand came down. And also, supply, you know, bottlenecks were there, supply froze because people are not working, so supplies could not go. So neither could finished products leave the factories, nor could, you know, the raw materials reach the factories. So both supply and demand froze. Now, this kind of a situation is unprecedented. And, you know, nothing like this happened during demonetization. 
And that's why I've said this is the greatest economic crisis that confronts India, and not only India, but also the other economies of the world. So that's the reason, you know, it's much worse. Hello. I, I agree with you in, uh, on this. Like, okay, now this is, there is a sort of problem and there is this whole uh, problem with demand supply and so on and so forth. But the question was that, did India actually have a choice? Um, because if you really look at it, like a lot of people have said that this lockdown was premature uh, or it was not rightly done. But did we actually have a choice as a country given the uh, social infrastructure that we actually had? And when I said social infrastructure, more in terms of medical facilities that we had. So probably lockdown gave enough uh, time for government to really build up some capacity to really tackle with the crisis that we were about to face or the uh, experiences that we could have actually had and which could have been fairly negative. So you're right. You know, lockdown was uh, inevitable because whichever country slowed down the implementation of the lockdown had faced problem, whether it be Britain or Sweden recently, or the US earlier, you know, so a lockdown is needed for the simple reason that, you know, uh, uh, you need to prevent the disease from spreading. So when you have a lockdown, people don't move, and therefore they don't infect each other. It's a very infectious disease, you know, it's, uh, you know, you have to slow that down. Otherwise, as you rightly said, the medical system will get overwhelmed, like almost happened in New York, like happened in Spain and Italy. But the question is, you know, in a country like India, where 94% are in the unorganized sector, large number of people live in slums and so on, where there may be five or 10 people to a room, it's very difficult to 24-7 for 10 people to live in a room. So, you know, there were imperatives of a lockdown, which were required to be done before we could successfully do the lockdown. That is what was not done. So I agree that lockdown was necessary. Otherwise, things would have become much worse in India. Our health infrastructure, which is inadequate, would have been flooded and overflowing with the people, patients, etc. We wouldn't have been able to cope with it. But, you know, what was required was that we decongest our slum areas, you know. And for that, we should have allowed time for people to migrate back to the villages after testing them. But unfortunately, our testing was very inadequate. So people would have gone without testing and therefore they would have carried the disease as they did to the tier two, tier three and the rural areas. You know, uh, the second thing was that people in the unorganized sector have very low savings. You know, the surveys show they, can, they cannot even buy one week's supplies, you know. And a lot of people in the cottage industry, you know, their working capital is only one week's uh, thing. So therefore they lost their entire working capital. So what was required to be done was, A, allow people to go back, those who stayed back, then, you know, disperse them in schools and the school buildings are empty, you know, set up tent colonies on the grounds and et cetera, so that they can be dispersed. Without that, you know, it wouldn't work. Uh, third thing is they don't have clean drinking water, you know. So how would they wash their hands? So you need to provide them with drinking water. Third is that you needed to provide them with the essentials of life because they wouldn't be able to go out to work and therefore they would start starving and therefore they would move around, you know. So therefore, you know, you needed to expand the PDS and provide the food that the people required, you know, wherever they were. And we had plenty of stocks. We had 75 million tons of food stocks. A lot of it is rotting. So therefore, we could have provided them with food stocks. And in agriculture, fruits and vegetables were rotting in the fields because they couldn't come out. So the government could have, you know, used transportation to bring that to the urban areas and provide that to the people. So these were the imperatives that would have made lockdown successful. We didn't do that. And that's why, you know, in India, the cases kept rising till September. You know, whereas in other countries which implemented a lockdown, cases started coming down in May, June. But in India, they kept on going up till September middle. It's only after September middle that the cases started coming down. 
So we had to open up the economy. The unlock was started in June, you know. So when we started opening up, then the disease kept spreading, you know. And that's why we kept on having rising number of cases in June, July, August. And in the middle of September, it seemed we would become the country with the largest number of cases, you know, even larger than the U.S. Because in the U.S., by then, the cases come, were coming down. In Brazil, the cases were coming down, you know. Fortunately, our cases started coming down from mid-September. Otherwise, you would have exceeded the U.S. in terms of the number of cases. We would have been the number one country. Now, there are reasons why it started happening like that in India after September. But that's another question. Yeah, so I have two or three follow-on questions on this yes. thing. Yes. So, you know, very poignant point of view in terms of like, there could have been so much that could have been done at, uh, at the time of lockdown. There were various steps that could have been taken. Uh, but this this could be fairly easy to say in hindsight, uh, once we have seen it. Like, where do you think uh, the government system could have actually gone wrong? Or uh, because there was absolutely no experience of something like this in the last 100 years. The last time a pandemic happened was in 1918, and suddenly we are confronted with something which is absolutely adverse. Right. Uh, yes, lockdown was right, probably no information, no learning from the previous or historical thing. Uh, so what, what more could have actually been done in terms of the analysis and getting it right? And so, not you know, I so I started writing you know, about the uh, pandemic and the coming pandemic since February, March. I had a piece in the Hindu. I was on uh, the India Today show with Rajdeep Sardesai. And I said all these things. I said, these are the imperatives of a lockdown. So if I could think through in middle March, you know, that this was what was required, that lockdown was coming, that to prepare for the lockdown, we needed to do all this. If I could think about it, so could the government. So could the experts in the government have thought about it. So it's not a you know rocket science that if you want to have a successful lockdown in a country which is as poor, where the unorganized sector is as large, then you need to do these things. Unfortunately, in India, what happens is we don't think of the unorganized sector at all. We only think of the organized sector. Most of our policies are designed for the organized sector. Whereas since demonetization, I've been arguing that the unorganized sector has been hit very badly. And it's the one that's been declining and that's in trouble. And that's why I've been arguing that our GDP data is also incorrect. You know, the GDP data doesn't in incorporate the unorganized sector separately. It assumes that the unorganized sector is growing exactly like the organized sector. That was true before demonetization, but not after demonetization. And that's why, you know, when the government says that the uh, Q1 decline in GDP was 23.9%, my uh, data suggests it's between 45 to 50% decline in GDP. Because if you include the unorganized sector, then you know, you'll get the true picture of the decline in the economy. So my argument has been that unorganized sector is a residual sector in the economy. The government and the policymakers don't look at it. And therefore, they don't design policies you know, uh, to protect this sector, to help this sector. So just stepping back, and I'll come back to this whole point of unorganized sector. Uh, but you've said that in India, the cases were, of course, a very well-known fact that cases were rising until September. But post-September, we have seen a very dramatic lowering of numbers. Right. What we are seeing is uh, that we are talk talking about 15,000 cases on a daily basis or yes. something around that figure. So what went right? Uh, Wall Street Journal has actually written that it was probably the idea of masks that has actually protected India. Uh, or uh, there are arguments in terms of saying that the, there is not enough testing or uh, whatever. But uh, where is it that, let's give the devil his due, uh, probably yes. where the government could have actually gone right in terms of managing it. So, you know, I think they're very, uh, we are fortunate that our population is much younger than, say, the European population, the American or the Japanese population. 
and younger people are known to be less affected by the virus. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, asymptomatic cases, you know. Uh, so people don't show the thing. And as, as is well known, 80% of the cases will be very mild asymptomatic. Okay, 15% will be people who require hospitalization or some care. And 5% would be severe cases. So in India, a large number of people got infected. In fact, one of the you know, experts said that, you know, uh, uh, 32 times greater number of people have already been infected as compared to the numbers that our tests are showing because we're not having adequate testing. <clears throat> we are one of the lowest in terms of testing per million of population. So if that is the case, then we have already got roughly 30 to 40% people uh, infected by it in asymptomatic ways. And therefore, some kind of herd immunity is building up you know, since that time. Second is, as I, I said, younger population. Third is the re recent research shows that where the uh, people live in unhygienic conditions, there the immunity levels are higher. And therefore, probably the virus uh, attack you know, uh, is able to be better dealt with by our bodies through the antibodies that they produce. So there could be any number of these things, but this virus, you know, we don't know enough about, you know, like for instance, suddenly in Britain, a new strain of the virus, a new mutant has come. In South Africa, a new mutant has come. It could be that uh, the mutant that was affecting us was less virulent. And you can see in Southeast Asia, you know, there has been less of an attack than, you know, in Europe and America. So we don't know enough what is happening, but, you know, there's always a possibility that a new mutant may come, which may be very virulent, and which may start attacking us, you know. So therefore, the vaccination will become important. Use of mask is very important, you know. Uh, but you're right, you know, Diwali came, festivals came, people are mixing around, you know. The Bihar election came and people thought, Ki, now the thing will blow up, you know. Now you can see the farmers are all milling together for the last one month, you know, uh, things like that. But we are very fortunate that it's not blown up, you know, in a big way like it is happening in the US and uh, much of Europe where lockdowns have again come into place. So, you know, we don't know, but we have to be careful because a, a mutation can take place and another virulent one can uh, come, which might again start blowing up. So we just have to be careful till vaccination takes place. Yes, yeah, so, and on vaccination, which is a very pertinent point uh, right now, we have a couple of vaccines which have been approved for emergency use. Uh, when do you think we will get back to normal on this? Like in terms of, like, because of course there is a new normal in terms of like what we are really living through. When do you think we are going to be vaccinated enough to really start moving freely and things? And what's your analysis saying? So, you know, we are about 140 crore people. So you need 280 crore doses. Plus our uh, Serum Institute has also committed to the WHO that will give, you know, doses to others. So to produce this many doses could take up to two years, you know. Uh, so therefore, by the time you get 60% of the population inoculated, you know, uh, that could take at least one year. So I think, you know, we are looking at at least till October, November before the situation can be such that people can start moving around more freely, you know. Uh, and as you rightly said, we are not going to go back to 2019. We are headed towards a new normal. You know, the way things are going, you know, whether it be in education, whether it be in e-commerce, whether it be in automation, uh, work from home, a lot of big changes are taking place. So therefore, we are headed towards a new normal. Uh, so this new normal, with more uh, move, movement of people, that would be, I think, past uh, October, November. Okay. And that's that's a positive uh, takeaway I take. Like, of course, like October, November, there would be a new set of things that will happen and probably some new normal. Uh, but coming back to one of your points, and that was about looking at uh, the unorganized sector, uh, 
or what yes. you're seeing in the residual sector or whatever. Um, what more can be done for them? Like Because if we look at the package that the government of India has given, uh, which is seemingly for the organized sector, uh, which helps them in a certain way, but how do you think we can actually do something more for the unorganized sector? So there are two things. You know, the uh, unorganized sector uh, has six crore cottage units, you know, very tiny units, you know. So they are 99% of the MSME sector. But all our policies are designed for the medium and small, but not for the micro sector. So even now under the Admirbhat package, we have lumped the medium, small, and micro together. And it's the medium and small which will get benefit. The micro will be left out, except for that uh, 10,000 rupee that has been allowed to be given to the Redi Patriwalas. Except for that, you know, there's very little in the package. Uh, second is, you see, this Atmanirbhar package only gives 3 lakh crores out of 22 lakh crores, you know, to the, uh, uh, to the poor people, you know, to the marginalized sections. You know, bulk of it is actually credit, you know. So the RBI credit is about 9 lakh crore, and then the government is giving, you know, additional credit here and there, uh, etc. Now, when an economy is uh, not functioning, then credit doesn't help. What you need to do is generate demand. So rather than have a supply side package, you need it to generate demand. How do you generate demand? So to generate demand, you have to have purchasing power with the people. They need to go out and buy. Now, there are two things there. One is that the incomes have gone down. And the second thing is the consumer sentiment has gone down, you know, because people are worried about the future. Now, the income going down in the unorganized sector is very clear because they lost work. You know, so they, they couldn't go to work and therefore they lost their income. So we have to generate income for them. Even in agriculture, because horticulture, pisciculture, floriculture, they all suffered, you know. And half of the output of agriculture is from all these things, you know. So, for instance, eggs were selling, uh, not selling, because midday meal schemes stopped and the eggs were, had to be supplied there. So, once the midday meal scheme was stopped, then the egg supplies, you know, froze. Uh, similarly, people stopped eating chicken, you know. Uh, so, th therefore, the poultry industry suffered. Uh, the uh, mithai shops and the entertainment and the sh uh, weddings, etc., they all stopped. So, the demand for milk came down. So, therefore, the milk industry suffered, you know. Uh, fruits and vegetables, you know, they started rotting in the field because as I've presented data in my book that Azadpur Mandi, which is the largest wholesale market in North India, was getting less than half the fruits and vegetables that was getting in 2019. So, it was all rotting in the field and you had pictures on TV showing Shimla mates being thrown by the farmers on the roads because they were not even getting one rupee, whereas in Delhi market was selling for more than 50 rupees, you know. So therefore, the supplies, you know, uh, uh, froze. So agriculture also came down. So in a sense, what you needed to do was generate employment. And therefore, my argument has been the rural employment guarantee scheme. That needed to be stepped up. The government increased the allocation from 60,000 crores to 1 lakh crore, but they really needed to increase it to about 3 to 4 lakh crores, you know, so that all the people who went back, plus those who were not getting work on the farms, they could all be employed. And once they start getting income in their hand, then they would start purchasing. Second is that in the urban areas also, a lot of the unorganized sector people, they lost employment. And when they lost employment, they again, you know, couldn't spend. So therefore, you needed to generate something like an employment uh, guarantee scheme of rural areas in the urban areas also. So you needed to step that up. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, need, that they could do. For instance, in urban areas, you needed to do contact tracing, you needed to do you know, uh, uh, taking care of the health aspect, the education aspect, and so on. A uh, lot of infrastructure building that could have been initiated. So you needed to step up that expenditure. So rather than just alloc allocate 3 lakh crore, you needed to allocate some like 8, 9, 10 lakh crores, you know, for generating employment, you know, in rural and urban areas, so that this money would have been spent. 
Now, if you give to the poor people, they'll spend 100% of it and generate demand. If you give that money to the upper middle class, you know, they'll only spend 10%, save the remaining 90%, you know. So demand would not get generated at the same level. So therefore, giving uh, funds at that level to the unorganized sector, that was one thing. Second is the micro sector units, you know, they exhausted their working capital. So they needed to be provided working capital so that they didn't close down. If they close down, then, you know, 97.5% of the MSME employment is coming from the micro units. And that if they close down, then you'll affect 97.5% of the employment of the MSME units. So micro units needed to be given greater support in terms of, you know, uh, credit, et cetera, uh, from the banking system or for directly from the uh, government itself. You know, if you did that, then the micro units which are in trouble now, they would not have been in trouble. So you needed to generate employment. That should have been the first task. So I have, you know, characterized it like, you know, if my house is on fire and somebody comes and gives me advice that, okay, I'll now buy a fire tender and I'll set up a fire station next door. By then my house would be burned. So immediately you need to generate demand. You need to give income to people. So, you know, you have to put, put water on the fire right now, you know, rather than say we'll do it later on. And of course, it'll mean the government's fiscal deficit will rise, shoot up. You know, there's no doubt. But everywhere the fiscal deficit is shooting up in the US, they have given a $900 billion package. Now, earlier they had given roughly $3 trillion. So that's 20% of GDP, you know. So their fiscal deficit is also going to be 25% of GDP, you know. So therefore, if our fiscal deficit was shooting up, that, that is what's happening all over the world because everybody is facing demand problem. Everybody is trying to generate demand. Everybody is trying to generate investment. And the private sector cannot do that as long as demand is short. And as we know, the RBI data shows capacity utilization had come down dramatically. Already in October 2019, capacity utilization was less than 70%. That fell further. Now, when capacity utilization falls, why would I invest? If I'm Maruti, I can produce 100 cars and I'm selling only 70, why would I expand capacity to 110? You know, so I would expand to 110 only if I begin to sell 85, 90 cars, you know. So unless capacity utilization goes up, private investment would not go up. If private investment doesn't go up, then the growth will remain low. So all this thing, so demand is the key, which will drive all this. Absolutely agreed on that. And But then if demand is the key, what do you think can be done now? Like we have a budget coming up in the next uh, three, four weeks or five weeks. Like what is it you would expect the government to do to really create that impetus yeah. wherein the demand conditions improve and we are able to kickstart in some way. So, you know, the demand needed to have been created right since July. Once businesses started working, you know, demand should have been created. So, you know, rural employment guarantee scheme, urban guarantee scheme, they should have been kickstarted right since July. You know, it was futile to do it in the month of May, June when the businesses were closed. But since July, when the businesses started re uh, reopening, uh, that's when they were complaining of demand shortage. So demand shortage should have been taken care of then. Second point is that you see our budget, you know, last year's budget or this year's budget is completely off. You know, it was expected that there'd be a 10% nominal growth in the GDP. So 204 lakh crore would have gone to 225 lakh crore. Instead, it has declined even by official, you know, this thing by about 10%. So if it's declined by 10%, it's gone from 204 lakh crore to 184 lakh crore. So therefore, there's a uh, hole in the GDP of 40 lakh crore. That means the tax collection is going to be down, okay, very substantially. So we saw GST falling earlier. We saw direct taxes falling, etc. So the fiscal deficit in any case has become very high, okay. Now, on the basis of these figures, you want to project for the next year. So if your figures are wrong and the government has not been admitting what the true decline in the GDP is, then your next year's figures will be wrong. 
So first thing is to connect the figures of 2020-21. And then on that basis, formulate your budget for next year. And for that, you need to have some growth projection. What is the expected growth projection? Now, if you again, you know, miss the growth projection, then your budgetary calculus will again go wrong like it's gone wrong this year, you know, and therefore you'll not be able to do it. So fiscal deficit is something that is going to rise. It has already risen, it's going to rise, and that is useful to generate demand. Because if you, the government spending on uh, creating employment, on uh, creating demand, you know, or uh, improving infrastructure, then that is going to help in the economy. So what the government needs to do is focus on areas where employment generation is going to be high. So therefore, you know, rather than go for big infrastructure projects like big roads and big, you know, uh, highways and uh, a rail corridor, etc., you need to start a lot of small, small projects. You know, when mm -hmm. I was a child, I used to see on road projects hundreds of people working. Now you see five people working with big, you know, machines, you know, with big bulldozers and big cranes, etc. So even the big infrastructure projects are not very employment intensive. You know, they are also very capital intensive. So we need to do this small, small infrastructure everywhere, like school buildings, like, you know, your uh, dispensaries, your, you know, rural, uh, you know, ro road projects, your uh, rural irrigation projects, et cetera, et cetera, which will generate a lot of employment and use the rural employment guarantee scheme, et cetera, to actually uh, 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 fund that. So that is what needs to be done. Then education and health. These are employment intensive. You know, education requires a lot of teachers, you know, you know, you have the government schools where there are 80 and 90 children to a class, you know, that can be brought down to 25. So you need to employ a lot of teachers, you know. So a lot of the educated people who have lost employment and CMIE says that 19 million people from the organized sector lost employment, 5 million professionals lost employment, you know. Now, therefore, you can set these people to work, you know, in education, in health and in various areas. So I think what we need to do is look at, you know, bootstrapping, you know, from the ground up rather than top down. So, you know, the government, when it's been talking, it's been talking about, you know, big highway uh, projects and big rail projects, etc. But I think we have to start from the lower end, you know, if we are to generate employment and to build up demand in the economy. So, so let's assume for a moment uh, that all the steps that you're saying can actually happen and government is listening to it and they would like to implement this. In that case, how quickly do you think we can actually recover and get back to a normal uh, rate of growth that we got used to at about 7%, 8%, or even higher? So, you know, I, I think we are not going to get back to 7%, 8% rate of growth because, you see, uh, given the need for physical distancing, you know, I think the capacities will be redefined. For instance, you know, uh, in the metro, in the trains, you know, now you have to leave one seat empty. So where one bogey used to carry uh, 100, 200 people, you know, now they're carrying only about 50 people. You know, in a bus, they used to carry maybe 70 people. You're carrying only 20 people, you know. So the physical distancing would require that we start re, uh, restart the production uh, at a lower level in terms of, you know, physical distancing. Uh, people will have to move, you know. So as, as far as I can see in the near future, capacity would be redefined. And when you have capacity redefined, the rate of growth will be less than what it was earlier. So unless, you know, something else happens, like, you know, automation, but automation will take some time, you know, uh, investment has to come back on. Investment uh, is not likely to happen uh, as long as there's uncertainty. If investment slows down, then the rate of growth will also slow down. So I'm worried that, you know, the rate of growth is not going to go back to 7 8%. We'll be very lucky if we, uh, next year, not in 21, but 22, if we reach 5%, we'll be very lucky. Of course, in 21, the rate of growth will be high because it'll be on a low base of 2020. 
you know, if the first quarter uh, officially fell by 23.9%, then in the first quarter of uh, this 21-22, uh, you're certainly going to have 15 to 20% rate of growth, you know, because on a low base of 23.9% decline officially, you know, so therefore the rate of growth will climb, no doubt about it, but it will not, the economy will not reach back to 2019 level till at least 2022, you know, and therefore the rate of growth will begin to pick up only after that. So you're talking about a fairly long recovery or road to recovery uh, as we are really uh, looking at in this present context. Yes. So yeah. I, that's why I've been saying that the government's argument that we'll have a V-shaped recovery is unrealistic. You know, uh, what is the slope of V? You know, as, as you know, V means that the economy will recover as quickly as it went down. You know, uh, so it went down very quickly in the month of uh, March, April, May. So it should recover in three months time, you know. But it's not re yet recovered, you know, I mean, still major sectors of the economy, whether it be uh, uh, travel, tourism, hotels, restaurants, uh, personal services, all these have not yet recovered because of the need for physical distancing, you know, like the railways used to run 14,000 trains every day. Now they're barely running 1000 trains uh, every day. So, you know, these major sectors have not recovered. So therefore, the economy is not likely to recover. And, you know, as I've been giving the example that uh, economy is not like a rubber ball you throw a rubber ball to the ground and it bounces back immediately. But an economy has people who are unemployed. It has factories which have not been able to work. You know, capacity utilization is low. Uh, investment is uh, low. So consumption is low. So therefore, it's going to recover only when all these things recover, when people's expectations change. You know, so the problem in, a, in a, what I, I've been arguing is this is like a depression. In a depression, people's expectations change. So the expectations have to recover back to where they were, you know. People are worried, you know, so like cash, people are holding a lot more cash. That's why the, uh, the money supply in the economy has increased, you know, because people are holding on to cash. You know, whenever there's an uncertainty, people go liquid. So they, you know, uh, hold more cash. So these are the expectations which have to reverse, which have to change back to where they were in 2019 for the economy to recover, you know. And that takes time because people will remain worried for some time. Uh, so therefore, recovery, you know, unless employment comes back to where it was, you know, a lot of people will still worry, you know, even in the organized sector, if 19 million people have lost employment, 5 million professionals have lost employment, and the large number of people have had salary cuts, you know, I know in media, for instance, there was a 10% to 40% cut, you know, of salaries of large number of journalists and large number were, you know, uh, without a job. So therefore, you know, in large uh, components of the economy, uh, people's incomes have been affected. So we don't stand alone in this journey, right? When Absolutely. Uh, yes, and but then if you really look at across the globe, like th this is also a very telling, uh, what I call, statement on how the globalization is actually going to happen in the future, how that realignment is going to happen. Where, where do you see that? The globe is going through an absolute turmoil from an economic standpoint. I think there is no country which has not been affected. They're going through a similar set of a cycle and probably a, as a Great Depression, as you would say, they're going through a similar cycle across different sets of countries. Oh, You're absolutely it, right, you know, that this pa pandemic, that's why it's called a pandemic, it has affected every every uh, nook and corner of this uh, world, including the Antarctica, it has sp spread to Antarctica also, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, was the last place that it uh, went to. Uh, and that's what, you know, gives us a sense that it, we are all a collectivity. You know, unless the last person gets rid of this virus and the virus remains, it can spread again, you know. So we have to, you know, even a Bolsonaro or a Trump or a Johnson or a Amit Shah can get it, you know. So nobody's safe. 
you know, you can't protect yourself as long as it's there, you know. So we have to develop this sense that we are a collectivity, that we have to tackle our problems as a collective, you know. But India is particularly uh, unfortunate, and that's why India got affected much worse, because we have such a huge unorganized sector. 94% of the employment is in the unorganized sector, and these people have very low capacity. You know, they have no savings or very little savings. So they can't protect themselves, you know. Their health status is very poor. Their access to health is very poor. So therefore, you know, nowhere else in the world, no other major economy did you see millions and millions of people migrating in, you know, terrible conditions in the heat without water and without, you know, food and with children in tow and the baggage on their heads, you know. This kind of pitiful condition you did not see anywhere else. In, and that's why we got hit the most. With the unorganized sector so overwhelming in India that it got hit and it hit the economy. And that's why we are recovering slower, etc. Now, about the globalization process, you know, the globalization process that you are saying is also going to be changing because we are in a process of deglobalization. People have realized that supply chains were very long and therefore their production got hit. So uh, various countries are now talking about, you know, uh, uh, shortening the supply chains, you know. So Trump has already said, uh, now, of course, he's going, but Trump had already said that he wants American capital to come back from China to America. Similarly, Europeans are also thinking about in this line that European capital should come back to Europe, you know, so that the supply chains can be shorter and the next pandemic, they don't get hit uh, very badly. So therefore, in a sense, there's a tendency towards deglobalization. And therefore, again, uh, companies which start shifting back uh, from China to Europe or America, you know, their cost will rise, you know. And India also, we are doing this Atmirbhar Bharat and we are putting checks on the Chinese supplies, et cetera. So costs will rise in India too. So these are some of the things that will affect trade. They'll affect the nature of travel. Uh, they'll affect the nature of doing business in the world. You know, uh, There'll be a lot more automation. There'll be a lot more e-commerce and such like things You know, so that people don't come in contact with each other. And above all, you know, we know that because the environment was getting destroyed and therefore animals were coming closer to human beings and that's why the viruses are jumping. This is the seventh virus in the last 20 years that has come. So we had H1N1, Mars, SARS, you know, we had uh, Nipah, Zika, you know, uh, 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 Ebola and Ebola was deadly. 50% of people who got Ebola died. Yeah. Here the mortality is only one and a half percent, you know, we are lucky. But it's spreading very rapidly. Fortunately, Ebola didn't spread that rapidly. And we know that these viruses will keep uh, jumping because there are 5 million viruses in nature. 5,000 of them attack human beings because of mutation. Now, the next mutation could be deadly. It could be a combination of Ebola's mortality and the virulence of uh, this uh, coronavirus. Then within a few months, two, 300 million people could die. So we have to be prepared. We have to uh, do a lot more R&D. You know, we have to be prepared for pandemics, you know, that you know, we have to quickly identify if a, if a new virus comes, you know. And also we have to worry about nature, that we don't get animals so high, tightly packed, you know, the way we produce uh, uh, meat and so on, you know, we tightly pack pigs, we tightly pack, uh, you know, chicken and so on. Now, when you do that, viruses jump very quickly from one to the other. And therefore they start mutating more quickly. And when they mutate, the next one can, you know, start affecting human beings as well, you know. So therefore we have to keep animals a bit more distance. We have to preserve the environment so the animals don't come close to us. The way we produce meat, et cetera, we have to change that. So this virus mutation slows down a bit, et cetera, you know. So a lot of these, that's why I'm saying we are headed towards a new normal. A lot of capacity will be redefined. Environment has to be protected, you know. Trade has to be the, this thing. Our unorganized sector has to be given a living wage 
so they can at least protect themselves if a pandemic comes at the moment they weren't able to protect themselves you know and in the next pandemic they may find it very difficult to protect themselves because they live at the edge so that's why it's a new normal so you're right what you're really saying is that we will have to really redefine or reimagine the way capitalistic system works and everything has to really get redefined uh, as we go along but do you think the world is ready for doing it or accepting or we will just quickly go back to normal once once we get vaccinated and we might not even remember what has actually happened to us in the last 18 months so you know capitalism has been forever transforming itself you know one of the strengths that capitalism has had is that whenever a crisis has come it's transformed itself you know you can see the 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 uh, great uh, depression that we were in and then keynesianism came in and the welfare state came in you know welfare state was a way of protecting capitalism you know because you know the demand was short so you gave uh, a purchasing power at the lower level you know through the welfare state you had a lot of public goods you know education health etc you know uh, everything became public goods so people could have a bare you know uh, could have the essentials of life and then the purchasing power kept capitalism going now from the mid 70s that keynesianism you know went into crisis and there was a change you uh, had monetarism and then as krugman and others have said uh, after that you know when the monetarism came disparities increased dramatically you know and disparities in 2001 census of the us were worse than what they used to be in the 1920s you know uh, so those disparities are the reason why unemployment has been there apart from technology being one of the important reasons why there's massive unemployment why there's destitution why job creation became a problem and that's why people are talking about the universal basic income again there's an attempt to transform because demand has been short you know in the us that's why uh, mr trump could purchase you know from the labor because he was saying i'll promise you jobs i'll bring capital back to america so capitalism keeps transforming now if there's a present danger that you know we have this crisis and get out of this crisis proving to be difficult people will begin to rethink what kind of development should we have you know so like for instance uh, people want to bring their capital back to their countries so american capital back to america european capital back to europe that will be a new form of capitalism anyway so therefore there is a rethink going on and i think we need to rethink even deeper so that we can protect ourselves in the future we spend all kinds of money on space to protect ourselves from asteroids you know but asteroids don't start uh, strike us uh, every a few years you know but this virus can strike us every 2 3 years you know new viruses 5 million viruses are there they keep mutating they they keep jumping onto human beings you know so therefore you know we re- really need to rethink so that we can survive you know for a much longer period of time and capitalism has shown repeatedly that it can go for new uh, rethink so you are right that people are fatigued at this point of time they want to return back you know with a vengeance they want to go to restaurants and they want to travel etc but who can do that only the upper crust the lower lower levels they don't have purchasing power you know so maybe the top 3% india can you know start going back to restaurants and you know for big vacations etc but the 97% you know those who are at the lower middle class and the lower incomes they don't have the purchasing power at the moment so unless that purchasing power returns they'll not go back to that and therefore you know we will face a crisis of demand if we don't take care of that 97% that crisis of demand will mean that capitalism will stutter so therefore you know a rethink is essential what will be our development paradigm so you know you're also alluding to something very important and that is that there is this higher disparity that is happening in this uh, pandemic or during this pandemic typically in the previous pandemic what has happened it was a great leveler kind that everybody was just falling down in terms of incomes and everything but in this pandemic there is something unique and that is that 
the upper end of the society seems to actually be making more money. Uh, the lower end does not, or the lower end of the society in terms of income bracket has not been able to do that. And the disparities are rising. Uh, would you accept that point? Or, and if, if you do accept that point, how do you really think it is going to affect the way uh, governments are run or how regimes are actually going to work? Because I want to really move to a, uh, the whole question of authoritarianism. And that is what you've mentioned in your book as well. Yes. So, you know, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, inequalities have increased and that's the property of lockdown. You know, lockdown has not happened. Even during Spanish flu in 1918 to 20, there was no lockdown as such, you know. Uh, so lockdown means, as I said, voluntary cessation of activities. You know? But essentials have to be produced. So there are certain sectors that will do well. Like, for instance, IT sector, if you can work from home, that will do well. If you are in telecom, you'll do well. FMCG will do well, pharma will do well, you know, and some of the related industries will do well. So therefore, those industries are doing well. For instance, as you can see in the stock market, you know, in the US and in India, technology companies are doing very well, you know, because they're providing the software, they're providing the technologies for things to automate, etc. So there's a split that has taken place between those uh, industries that are doing very well right through the lockdown and those that were shut down where the normal demand actually fell. So, you know, in India, hotels, restaurants, you know, airlines, uh, travel, tourism, they're all, you know, in down and dumps, you know. So therefore, you have a, you'll have a split. Secondly, the unorganized sector closed down. So between the organized sector and the unorganized sector, there was a split. And the unorganized sector is concentrated in the poorer states. So the poorer states actually are doing much worse than the richer states where you have more of services and industry, etc. So therefore, disparities of all kinds. Uh, have increased. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And therefore, we need to worry about it because as disparities rise, demand will be a problem. And as I've been repeatedly saying, as long as demand is a problem, the economy will not be able to recover. And that will be the case globally, you know, because uh, now in uh, much of Europe and America, you know, there's a second wave and a third wave, you know, so therefore things are again shutting down. But there the state has acted very strongly. For instance, you know, the pay protection program in the US, you know, or in UK, where 80% of the salary of small businesses are being paid by the government so that they don't fire people and people keep getting the salary. Plus they're putting in, you know, up to $70,000 of uh, income, they're giving you money, you know. Uh, so th there's various ways in which they've tried to protect at the lower level. But in India, we have not been able to do that. So I think in India, the disparities have risen dramatically. And that's why you see in the stock market, the stock market wealth has gone up where the economy is not yet uh, back to 2019. You've crossed the 2019, you know, the stock market high. Uh, now in a situation where there's, so there's a lot of speculation going on, a lot of funds are going into certain areas. Uh, and, you know, alternate investment uh, patterns are very poor. For instance, you know, real estate is still not recovered. You know, fixed deposits are giving you very low return. So where do people with some savings and some money go? They go into the stock market. They're going to, uh, you know, uh, investing in the companies that are doing well. You've seen Reliance do very well, for instance, you know. Because the technology companies want to use the Reliance Geo platform. So Google and Facebook and everybody's investing there. So a company that is highly indebted suddenly has no debt. You know, it's a debt-free company because everybody's invested there, you know. So it's done very well, you know. So therefore, you know, there is a disparity that is growing. The disparity will grow, but that will be a danger to capitalism. So we need to worry about that. And that's why even before the pandemic, you know, people like George Soros and others were saying that the wealthy have to pay more taxes, you know. We are not paying enough taxes. We need to pay taxes so that we can, you know, filter that down to the lower levels, and therefore that will help. Now, so some some thinking in the, uh, you know, uh, captains of uh, uh, capitalism also 
has been that we need to reduce disparities for the economies to work better, for the capitalist economies to work better. But when you are saying increase the taxes and things, in your book, you've actually said that this is possibly not the right time to increase taxes or levy new taxes. No, so I, yeah, so I've said that, yeah, you're right. So I, 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 I've said that at this point of time, if you were to increase your, uh, you know, corporate tax, you know, then the profitability will go down further as it is the profitability has been hit because a large number of companies are closed. A lot of people have lost income. So income tax raising is also going to be very difficult, you know, and wealth tax is paid out of incomes, you know. So you have to have an income. If you don't have an income, then you have to sell asset. So take, for instance, I've given the example of Reliance. Reliance share is 2,000 rupees. If you levy a 1% tax, it has to pay 20 rupees, you know, per share of wealth tax. But the dividend is only 6 rupees 50 paisa. So you'll have to sell some of the Reliance stock to be able to pay the tax of 20 rupees. So therefore, a lot of assets will come in the market. And as businesses fail, a lot of property will come into the market, you know. And therefore, you know, asset prices will decrease. And that's why I've been arguing that what we need to do is float COVID bonds and get the wealthy and the banking system, which is flush with funds, to subscribe to the COVID bond. That'd be a better thing to do than, you know, going for wealth taxation in a situation where the economy is already down, where, you know, people's profits are down. So that, that should come later. But at this point, it is this. But the point I was making is George Soros and others are saying that we are paying very little tax because we have large number of concessions and deductions. You know, so we should remove those concessions and reductions, you know, uh, at an appropriate time. So the wealthy begin to pay more taxes and that then is used to generate more employment and, uh, you know, take care of the disparities and the demand. Awesome. And but just moving a little ahead onto the conversation, uh, I would like to you made a very important point within the book as well. And that is about crisis of learning. So just just want to talk about a little bit of social change that is actually happening around us uh, and the cha challenges that we might face. This has been a year which has been fairly challenging for the young, especially the students. And you have alluded to this in terms of say crisis with uh, learning that has actually happened. And of course, because of the digital divide that actually happens within the country. How do you think we can recover from this one year of gap of learning that has happened? Because there are some studies that, that say that if a student who's between the age of say six and 15, does not really study appropriately in school for a year can actually set back by about five to six years in terms of learning processes. So th th there can be a regression, but I think there's a more fundamental problem which I have been pointing to. I've written a lot on education also, uh, which is that learning is by rote in India. You know, we bug up and then we reproduce. You know, uh, Now, when you are doing distance learning, this will not work. You know, because you have to get the attention of the child and getting the attention of a child, you know, requires special, uh, you know, a technique. So our teachers are not equipped to do that. You know, that's a big problem. They are only used to dictating notes or putting the notes down on the blackboard and children copying it, mugging it up and then forgetting it. So the absorption is very low and the attention span, you know, how do we get the attention span? That is a critical thing. So it's one thing that even those who have the, you know, the mobile phones, who have the laptops and who can attend classes, even their attention span is very short and even they will not be able to study well uh, through this distance learning mode, uh, <coughs> through this uh, e-learning. And those who don't have it, of course, are disadvantaged. So that's the divide. <coughs> so we need to retrain our teachers to be able to teach through the absorption, through, you know, uh, uh, you know what I've been arguing, you know, in education is we need to give the content well. 
rather than pack the content you know if you pack the content and it's a very you know uh, unwieldy it's uninteresting then the child will lose interest but if you have little bit of content and it's very well uh, presented very well uh, given child will absorb it and will uh, take off on their own so this crisis of learning is not only because they'll miss a gap but this you know gap will be even greater because the uh, the teachers are not used to teaching uh, through these techniques so we have to retrain our teachers you know and this is a permanent thing even if the, the classroom teaching begins i think our teachers have to get to the stage where the children begin to absorb they find the teaching interesting they find the subject interesting you know that's how my interest arose you know in education and i became good at uh, education because suddenly one day my physics teacher was teaching something and my mind was just blown you know and after that i never looked back you know on my own i could study you know so if you catch a child's imagination and get the child's curiosity you know the child will start learning you know but most of our education system kills that curiosity you know and through this uh, net uh, education you know that curiosity is further killed because there is very little interaction it's not easy to do this kind of interaction you know which a, a teacher can you know like when i teach in the class i can tell you know the, from the spark of the child you know that they are understanding and when they are uh, you know sort of bit down i realize that i'm not able to get across you know so in face to face teaching there's a interaction that's a, a unwritten interaction that's taking place and that's very helpful in teaching you know and when you know children ask you question then you realize you haven't got through and then you try and present it in a different way so teaching has to change you know somehow uh, a lot of people don't agree with you on this uh, and with the recent valuation of baidus and selling of akash how do you really react to that with a billion dollar valuation for a coaching institution and everything? so you are right you know i mean in india we we have coaching institutions because our school teaching and college teaching is not good if school teaching and college teaching was good people won't need to go separately to the coaching institutions right and what do the coaching institutions do the quota you know the quota thing you know the big uh, large number of uh, coaching institutions in quota or in mukherjee nagar in delhi they make you mug up they only give you exam technique how to pass in the exams right but they don't give you a wider training as far as education is concerned so you know what in india we see a degree as a passport to a good job and that's why there's mass scale cheating you know there's massive cheating that goes on in exams because everybody wants to get good grades so they can get into uh, places you know but absorption of knowledge that is very little you know so what we need to do and that's why research and development in india is very weak we don't do the kind of research and development for the kind of number of uh, children we have in education you know our r and d is so weak that you know we are falling behind china china has moved ahead and we have a huge trade deficit with them so uh, china spent lot of money on r and d which we haven't done you know so our education is poor our r and d is very poor and therefore you know uh, think about the acer uh, report annual survey education report you know from 2000 by 5 they're saying that 50% children in rural schools cannot do in the fifth class cannot do second class reading writing or arithmetic you know so they'll never be able to absorb modern technology they'll always be backward they cannot they cannot do a modern job so you are assured of 50% poverty for the next 50 years till these children get out of the job market you know because when they come in they'll have very low skills and their capacity to absorb will also be very low and many of these children are also malnourished you know so they have you know Uh, inherent uh, problems you know in terms of their uh, cognitive skills 
you know so we have a lot of these problems which need to be taken care of so that's why i'm saying learning has to be changed it, it is in a crisis we have to have good schools for everybody give opportunity to everybody you you know like your statement looks like a doomsday prophecy as well if <laughs> 50 years is what you are really talking about how do we really get out of it is going to be one big question uh, and then of course I, at least within your statements i do see a solution that you yourself alluded to in the beginning or you said in the beginning that okay now there are a lot of people who have lost jobs a lot of professionals who have lost jobs so they can go to teaching and we can actually create a very smart teaching infrastructure which can solve some of the problem and and we might actually get it right in the next 5 10 years so you know uh, we have to strengthen our education absolutely no doubt we have to strengthen higher education you know we've never spent 6% of gdp on education which is what the international norm is you never crossed 4% on public education so we need to do that we need to step up on r&d there's no doubt but above all we need to change the way we teach you know the way we teach is all through rote and there i blame mccauley mccauley separated teaching from research you know and uh, my father was a professor in allahabad university from 46 and he used to tell me that the senior professors in allahabad university used to say why do we need a good library we are for teaching not for research so it was internalized in our higher education that we are for teaching not for research so we separated teaching from research and when you do that then you only do rote learning you know you're not learning to absorb knowledge you know so this rote learning which has been ingrained in our system we have to get out of that we have to make it learning interesting we have to pay our teachers better get the best into teaching if we get only uh, students who are second divisioners or third divisioners they themselves have not absorbed knowledge how will they excite the children you know so lot of teachers you know when when i have gone for interviews in school uh, uh, you know uh, teachers appointment i find that most of the candidates who come they haven't absorbed the knowledge you know so how will they train the students so we need to get the best into teaching you know that's one of the first thing we need to create interest in the students so that they begin to learn well we need to put lot more infrastructure into education and health you know so we need to prepare ourselves for the, all that so i'm not being doomsday uh, in the sense of saying it 50 years we'll have 50% poverty but that's the reality today you know that you know we have such a huge amount of poverty that's why we still have 94% uh, workforce in the unorganized sector still 70 years after independence you know mm-hmm. we haven't been able to move them out of that out of the very low level of you know circuit of uh, production and distribution and consumption so we need to do that we need to begin to think about all that so i think what this has done is as i said it has brought us to the point where we now recognize we are a collectivity so the upper classes you did not think about the unorganized sector but when they saw people walking in this heat and so on suddenly i think they were confronted with the reality of india many of them got sensitized many of them gave money many of them went out and gave food i think this sensitivity in the upper classes will help us to design policies for the unorganized sector for the poor as well you know otherwise we are very happy in our own consumerism and that's one thing that we will have to check consumerism because consumerism is what is responsible for the environmental damage which is what is making the virus keep jumping you know so all these things you know uh, need to come uh, and that's why i'm saying it will be a new normal yeah so you're saying like if consumerism reduces that means that the demand is also going to reduce so you're actually talking about a lower level of equilibrium as we really look no, at no so consumerism of the well off sections will have to come down and the consumption of the lower sections has to go up because they are the ones who are not able to consume you know uh, think about it you know what uh, the person who's walking down the streets you know uh, walking a thousand kilometers with how much luggage does he have he just has a small portly on his head you know that's all his belongings 
you know, and look at our houses. They're full of stuff, you know. So consumerism comes from us. Consumerism doesn't come from them. So you can generate demand. And there's also, you know, a new theories about degrowth, saying that, you know, we don't have to keep growing because after all, the Earth's resources are limited. So we can have prosperity in terms of services rather than consumption of goods, you know. So therefore, you know, it's possible to continue to prosper without necessarily consuming more. I have to ask you one more question on the yeah. social aspects that you uh, talked about. And before we move into closing the conversation, uh, you, you've, uh, on social infrastructure, we have really talked about education, the challenges that we see. But this pandemic has also told us the importance of uh, health infrastructure and how important it is when you invest in that and probably focus on R&D and so on and so forth. How do you really react to that proposition? So, you know, uh, we should be spending at least 3% of uh, our GDP on public health. We've never crossed 1.3%, you know. So our health systems and infrastructure is very, very inadequate, you know, compared to what is required. We need to spend a lot more. And here, my argument has been that we have a very large black economy in the country. The black economy is 60% of GDP. That means we are missing out 24% of tax GDP ratio from our taxation. If you could get that uh, uh, black economy, even if one third of that comes into the white economy, you'll have enough resources to step up your expenditure on education and health. And the health also requires massive uh, R&D. You know, most of our research in uh, health is coming from the West. It's coming from Pittsburgh. It's coming from London. And we simply copy those procedures here. So, you know, I had a conversation with some professors of AIMS in 1997. And I was surprised. They said we only repeat the procedures that are developed there. There are very few procedures that we develop here. Whereas our health requirements are very different. You know, our poor people's health requirements are very, very different. For instance, if we give clean drinking water to every, uh, you know, family, then 70% of the disease would go down because 70% of disease is because of the uh, unclean water, you know? So we need to do these basic things, you know? So health infrastructure, and I think prevention is very essential, you know? So this mask using and all these things are very pre good preventive devices and we need to continue with that. Like Southeast Asia, you saw that they were using mask in the normal way. For them, mask was nothing new. It's for us that the mask was something new. So if we uh, have more hygiene, if we have more, uh, you know, mask use, and we change our health infrastructure, improve it, you know, have many more doctors and uh, nurses and so on, then I think we will be able to deal better in the future with any such pandemic that may come. And last two questions. Well, this one, going back to the uh, global economy, uh, in fact, the last pandemic, 1918, uh, and then, of course, the, the world war actually happened at that point in time, which saw the rise of the roaring 20s. Are we really talking about rise or another roaring 20s for this decade? So, you know, uh, as I said, we are headed towards a new normal, you know. There'll be a lot of change, a lot of structural changes, you know. A lot of automation will take place, etc. So the traditional industries, they are going to be in deep trouble. And that's where bulk of your employment is, you know. <clears throat> you didn't have the kind of automation available in the 20s that you have available now. So job creation will become a huge problem. So we'll have to worry about the nature of job creation. You know, How do we give employment to everybody? Because otherwise you'll have to think of something like the universal basic income. And I don't like the idea of universal basic income because it's just giving money in the hands of people. And when you give money only without job, then you lose dignity. Job is what gives you dignity. So if you have dignity, then you don't live an alienated life. You know, what's happened is that 
without a proper job, you know, alienation sets in. So in other words, you know, the problem is that uh, how to create jobs in spite of automation, that becomes a very, very important thing. You know? So this is where I think we will be in a very different situation than in the 20s. Because as I said, you know, in my book, there are contradictory tendencies. We need to give a lot more jobs, but the way automation is going, the way artificial intelligence is moving, et cetera, we are undercutting jobs and undercutting jobs where people are, people with low skills, and especially in India. So we need to be very careful about the kind of automation, et cetera, that we uh, get into. Your mic, your mic is, I, I couldn't hear. Yeah, so the last question from yeah. my side, I think this has been just a fascinating uh, discussion. But you did say something very important, and that is that your physics professor said something very important and that opened up your mind. But I do have to ask you a question. What made you move from a master's in physics to a career in economics? So I, I went to Princeton to do a PhD in physics. And, uh, you know, I, I realized that I didn't like the life in the U.S. It was very materialistic, very self-centered. And I, you know, thought I'd go back to India. But, you know, I saw that physics in India was also facing the same problem of, you know, demoralization and demotivation and so on. So I, I decided to switch out of physics and do something else. So I went for rural development, you know, <clears throat> to Hoshangabad. And there I realized the importance of economics. So I decided to study economics on my own for six months. Then I appeared in the entrance exam at JNU and ISI, etc. And then I decided to start the PhD. I was lucky that that time you could go straight into a PhD program even without a master's in the subject. Now you can't do that. Now you have to do master's or MPhil to get into the PhD program. At that time, I was allowed to go straight into the PhD program. So I did my MA courses while doing the uh, PhD program. So that, okay. Now that's an interesting uh, conversation. We can always come back to it in one of the other uh, uh, conversations that we host for you. But Professor Kumar, this has just been such an interesting conversation, such a fascinating conversation. So many important anecdotes that we really learn from it. Uh, but I do hope uh, that we are uh, looking at a world which is going to be far, uh, what I call, better as we go along. This pandemic is something that teaches us quite a bit, and we become better as a society in terms of either managing climate or really uh, looking at the situation for the poor and really create a system which is far more positive. Uh, but having said that, thanks a lot for joining us uh, today. And it was just a pleasure Thank you. and honor to have you with us. Thank you, Professor Kumar. Thanks, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks. Thank okay. Bye. Bye.